This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is uh, Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. And for a change, my guest is uh, quite literally in the same time zone <laughs> as I am. And he's joining me on the other side, Pierce Robinson. We were just talking a moment ago, Pierce, uh, that uh, you're, you're British, but you live in uh, Germany. That's right, in, in Berlin. Uh, originally, I'm an academic by training. Um, I worked 20 years in British university higher education, um, first as an academic at uh, University of Liverpool. Um, and then I was at Manchester University and then ended up as a chair, professor in politics, society and political journalism at the University of Sheffield. And my, my academic background primarily involved looking at questions of media, conflict and war. Um, so my PhD was on what was known as the CNN effect back in, in the 90s, which was this kind of idea of media driving intervention in places such as Somalia. Northern Iraq, Kosovo, and my research interests evolved and developed. I looked at the Iraq war and media coverage, but then really by 2010, I was starting to look more closely at some of the manipulation of intelligence in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003 with the now infamous weapons of mass destruction, which were, were never found and never there. And that really got me looking more closely at propaganda. And really, for the last seven or eight years, I've been very focused on developing theoretical, but also empirical work on propaganda. And in the most recent years, um, I left the University of Sheffield in, in 2019. Um, and since then, I've been running well the organization for propaganda studies with a number of colleagues, but also carrying on a number of research projects, Syria Working Group, the Working Group for Syria Propaganda and Media, um, also now uh, helping work with the working group on uh, propaganda and 9-11 war on terror. Um, so you can see here, there's a pattern here of, of various research activities looking at propaganda in the contemporary world. Um, and I, I sort of, I mean, one of the blessings of, of, of getting out of, of, of an institution was having much more control and more time to, to do research. But I'm mm. now finding myself sort of I've been very active looking at the uh, OPCW organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons and alleged chemical weapons attacks in Syria. Um, I've been very involved working on that, researching that, and also um, in contact with various OPCW persons um, in relation to that. Um, and that's been a big part of my time in the last couple of years. Um, but now, obviously, and probably the purpose of this interview, sort of COVID-19, which has dominated everything for a year and a half, is now, um, mm -hmm. in a way, sort of forced itself onto my research agenda, um, partly because people have approached me and asked me to do things, but also because I've become aware that for all of the work I'm doing on conflicts and war and propaganda mm. such as Syria and the OPCW controversy, you know, we're now in the middle of what can only be described as a, as a pretty massive propaganda um, yeah. operation stroke um, event, I think is a better way of describing it. And so I'm now looking increasingly at this. And, and that's, that's essentially me um, in, in, a, in a nutshell. Well, let's just quickly deal with uh, something else. Uh, if um, if somebody types in your name into Google, the, the word disgraced comes up. 
and and obviously obviously if the media says something like that it's it's the opposite yeah i mean see that that's all of that is it's, it's very and i forget this sometimes you know people can easily go and google me or um look at wikipedia um, yeah we don't talk about course. google anymore pierce sorry we talk about duck duck go oh okay duck, duck, go. sorry <laughs> So obviously you'll see that there are a lot of unpleasant newspaper articles about me, the Times in particular, but also the Huffington Post um, accusing me of you know, spreading conspiracy theories, war crimes, denials. I, I could probably run the entire list off if you wanted me to. Um, but there is, yes, there's a, there's a big um, track record of material out there from particular media outlets attacking me. Um, to be quite honest, the, the, the primary reason for that is the primary explanation I have for that is that the work I was involved with looking at Syria and the alleged chemical weapons attacks, which is now a, a quite a big controversial issue. There are many other people sort of talking about it and involved in that, as well as OPCW persons, um, not just a figment of my imagination, as some of the papers originally described. But that controversy has or that issue that we were looking at and it was me and a number of other colleagues um, the bottom line is that we have been stepping all over an active foreign commonwealth office linked propaganda operation in relation to Syria that is a live war it's a conflict where Britain America and France are still working to try to overthrow the Syrian government um, and we got involved looking at some of these issues and I think that some of the ferocity of attacks really have ultimately been by that. I, I don't think the kind of negative publicity surrounding, for example, comments I might have made about 9-11, which actually are quite tame in the sense of saying, well, we, the official story is not correct and we need mm. to do more research. I don't think that's driven the kind of negative coverage you're talking about. I don't think sort of uh, comments I made about COVID-19, which uh, was you know, used as a, a newspaper article in the Times, were really the reason. I, I think that the main drive behind that sort of let's be nasty to peers um, has, has really been because of this, this Syria issue. And, and I think that's the reality. If, if you're a researcher or an academic and you're, you're treading all over uh, a propaganda operation run by mm. your own government in this case and other powerful governments um, uh, this is the danger it would risk that you run but of course you know the other side is, is that well this is predictable you predict this to happen that people who ask intelligent reasonable questions about something um, which is challenging power you're going to get smeared and attacked they'll try to shut you down um, and, and I guess in some ways that's been one of the sort of interesting experiences for me looking at COVID-19 because I've actually seen being done to a, a wide range of academics exactly what it was mm -hmm. done to me and other colleagues in relation to Syria, um, which we might talk a little bit further yeah. in the interview, but we've had this same process almost, I, I, there's been no glee in any of this, but I, I've, I've sort of felt sort of, well, yeah, this is, we've been through this and now we're see it working on the level of you know uh, epidemiologists very high profile natural yeah. scientists essentially rather than sort of social scientists who are sort of you know seen in terms of the public eye as sort of small fry relative to the to the you know, big name scientists they're getting attacked too and they're getting smeared and it's the same tactics the same techniques um and 
So that's a, a kind of overview of what's been happening to me. But in, in answer to your question, uh, don't believe everything you read in the newspapers. But this is what happens when you question power. And there's a slightly more provocative sort of line to my colleagues in the academy who, the many of them who don't speak up on many of these issues, you know, the bottom line is, is if you're not getting attacked, you're not really doing your job these days yes. because we do live in an era where there's a lot of corruption and a lot of deception. And we have a choice as actually as, as citizens or people, journalists or academics, we have a choice to either say, well, we're going to speak out about this and try to get the truth out, or I'm just going to hide <laughs> um, and, and hope it will all blow over at some point. Um, and I, I choose to, to, you know, to, to speak out or to speak the truth, not to sort of speak out in a, in a, mm. in a, in a, in a way which is lacking objectivity. But, you know, if, if there are important major things which are going on and which people need to be thinking about and talking about and researching, then you need to say that. Um, and, you know, if we don't, then we're not really doing our jobs. We might as well be doing something else altogether um, if we're not going to be brave but, in that way. So what you're saying is that you are a victim of propaganda. Yeah. The irony. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say you can call me a victim, right? In, 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 in a sense, that's true. I mean, I, I say I'm, I'm a predictable consequence of propaganda. <laughs> this is what happens when people challenge. But, but okay, I'd, I'd say that, you know, for all of the attacks that have been leveled against me, um, you know, I, I still get approached by lots of people and to be, to be interviewed and I get approached by a lot of people for advice and support and, and I carry on doing the work that I'm doing. And in relation to the OPCW issue, I mean that is still an issue which is still carrying on and it's still there's a still battle, a battle to get the truth out. But the reality is that the, the Times newspaper targeted me and my colleagues the day UK, France and America were bombing Syria in response to this alleged chemical attack in Douma. Literally, so seven days after France, America, US bombed Syria, accusing a Syrian government. Um, and the Times had us on the front page. They had an editorial about it. There's four newspapers, unprecedented attack on academics. And that was back in 2018, okay? And then a year later, somebody within the OPCW obviously saw that we were trustworthy enough to leak a engineering report to us, and they did. And since then, as we have made clear in, in, in briefing notes that we've put out, we have been in communication with OPCW persons who have been trying to get the truth out about what's happening in the OPCW. So that attack from the Times... <laughs> didn't and actually and if anyone knows the history of the OPCW uh, scandal you'll find that sort of um, you know a year later a document was leaked to us and, and then after that more leaks occurred to WikiLeaks um, an OPCW person gave testimony so so more information actually came out so so us by us taking that you know starting to talk about these issues and then getting attacked so mm. uh, obviously in the times I mean in some ways just raised the profile of the issue and also for those people within for example the OPCW who who were trying to get the truth out they realized well you know, who should we, who should be spoken to? Should it be a mainstream journalist? Because they don't look as though they can be trusted, but mm -hmm. we can trust these people. So, you know, um, it, 
I could be a victim, but maybe this is just, you know, this is just what you have to ride with when you study propaganda. Um, but also, you know, as long as you keep standing, yeah, yes. as long as you keep going. Um, it comes with the territory, know, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it actually can, in a sense, make you more influential um, and powerful. And, and, and in a way, I'm not saying that, you know, sort of mainstream academia looks at me sort of <laughs> with <laughs> warm glow uh, and so on, mm. but a wider community out there and a wider audience, I, I get a lot of support from um, and a lot of attention from. And, you know, th there is a sense in which, you know, people recognize people who are telling the truth. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it's not all, I wouldn't like to think of myself as a victim. Um, I don't feel like a victim. I just feel it's, well, this is anybody, anybody who's getting a yeah. is part of doing a job these days. What do we mean when we talk about propaganda? Well, propaganda is the, the way that I've tended to find it in, in publications, but propaganda is, is a coordinated deliberate attempt to influence people's actions, beliefs, and, and behavior, okay? So the, the first thing in there is that it, you know, there needs to be, to propaganda properly understood for me, it needs to involve you know, somebody being organized, trying to do something. So for example, you expressing your political opinions um, sort of on, on, uh, in a park to, to a small audience, um, you wouldn't necessarily call that propaganda, that you expressing your political views. Propaganda needs to be a, a little bit more organized than that. One could still say that elements of what you're saying could be described as propagandistic, but it's sort of not sort of propaganda in terms of being carefully organized, a campaign in order to shape people's opinions and their behavior. So that's the first thing, is, is organized attempts to uh, persuade influence and also to order people's conduct because so that's a, a thing i say about propaganda it's not just about getting people to believe something it's, it's getting people just to act in particular ways people don't necessarily have to believe the messages you're saying but they have to feel that they have to act in a particular way given uh, the messages being put out um, the final thing I say is that you know some academics argue that propaganda is any kind of persuasion. So everything is, is just like the art of, of trying to get people to think in a particular way. Um, I, I think the way I define propaganda is, is that propaganda really refers to some kind of manipulation, whereby there's a non-consensual process going on that in some ways you are either deceiving people or you might be incentivizing people in some way or even coercing people to think and act a particular way. But the idea is that it's non-consensual. It's, it's not really what you'd expect in the ideal sort of sense of, of a democratic public sphere where people rationally debate and there's no, it's relatively free of coercion. It's relatively free of incentivization. And I wouldn't call communication which accords to those sort of, um, one could argue sort of utopian, but at least, you know, ideals, democratic ideals. I wouldn't call sort of persuasion and organized persuasion which adheres to those principles as, as, as propaganda. Propaganda's got to be a, a more manipulative. It's got to be about, as I say, some maybe deception, maybe incentivization, maybe co coercion. But it's, 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 it's getting people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise freely choose to do. And, and that's, I, I think, how, you know, the, the uh, most straightforward like, way of defining propaganda. Like buying Coke rather than Pepsi. I mean, it sounds like advertising. 
Yeah, propaganda is advertising. I mean, all advertising is 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 within the, the framework of propaganda. I mean, the, the, perhaps the other point to, to, to make for for those in your audience who, who aren't familiar with this, you know, pro propaganda in the early part of the twentieth century was widely seen as a necessary part of democratic governments. So people, uh, Walter Lippmann, for example, um, wrote about the role of propaganda. Edward Bernays as well, and and it was it's just seen as part manipulation of the masses or the intelligent manipulation of the mind, as Edward Bernays put it, was just seen as a necessary part of democracy. That democracy couldn't be allowed free reign. There had to be some management of people. Had people had to be led, and it wasn't seen in in, prob in a problematic terms. But but by the mid twentieth century, it it had a negative. Um, in, interpretation in the sense that I, you know, the way the Germans had used it in the First World War and Eddie Bernays said well we had to come up with a new term public relations and he actually says you know, the Germans gave propaganda a bad name in, in, in the First World War so we had to rebrand it essentially and called it public relations <laughs> and, and, and so when, when people think of public relations or even strategic communication all of these terms that we use today and we see, you know, commonly used by politicians and commercial organisations, and even within the academy throughout Western democracies. In an earlier era, that would have been called propaganda, and no one would have had any problem with it, um, and so on. So, so when you know, these are all essentially propaganda activities. However, the point made there is that I like to try and keep it, this distinction between sort of pro propaganda which is manipulative and then forms of persuasion which actually you know because I think you, you can try and persuade somebody to buy, buy a can of coke in a way where you're not deceiving them and you're not incentivizing and you're not coercing but, um, it, that might not be the way but there is a way you can do that in a way which is relatively consensual and giving somebody you know the, the greatest choice to, to sort of turn it down um, or accept it, um, and, and that is possible, and, and, and I think that's one. But that's what a kind of a battle within sort of academic thinking that there is. There is still a lot of confusion within the within the academy over what propaganda is and, and how we define it. Myself and colleagues wrote a, a paper in two thousand and nineteen, critical sociology, which which maps all of this out and explains exactly how we should be conceptualizing this. Um, but I think it is important not just to go down the road of saying that everything, any kind of persuasion is propaganda. Right. Because then we just lose our ability to think, well, what's good democratic forms of persuasion and mm. what falls into manipulation, which you know, by and large is a problem from a democratic point of view. I'm reminded um, of I'm reminded of the uh, Warren the Warren Commission report. The CIA brought out um, a memo, basically. Um, Crit criticizing those who are criticizing um, and they they use they started weaponizing the term conspiracy theorist I mean the, the weaponization of the term conspiracy theory and and, and uh, th there's a little bit of dispute between some academics about sort of where exactly where the term came mm -hmm. from because obviously con term conspiracy theory has been around for, for longer than that but but it, but it is true I, I understand that this idea that the CIA as it was as you say weaponized it and this idea of this is a term that we can use in order to try to discredit people who are raising reasonable questions about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. 
Um, and, and I understand from people who have looked at it, there is an uptick in, in the use of the term conspiracy theory. Mm. But yeah, but that's propaganda. That that's mm. that's none of that would fit into anything which is open or consensual. That's right. you know, you're trying to manipulate. Um, and of course, this is one of the points that that, that, that I and others make um, who, who look at propaganda, use the term propaganda, is that actually when you look in democracies and you look at the scale of the industry associated with public relations, associated with psychological uh, psycho operations, strategic communication, when you look at the scale of these, you, you suddenly realize quite how dominated our world is. With propaganda, and this is quite a lot. Of this is quite carefully thought out, and this is one of the things which came out early on in the UK in relation to COVID nineteen, the involvement of Spy B, the behavioural psychologists, advising the British government on how to increase fear levels to get people to comply with lockdown. This is, you know, this is well thought out, careful, intelligent manipulation of the mind. I mean, I mean advertising can, comes under the, the, the banner of propaganda and would have done historically. Um, I think if you understand propaganda as manipulation, yeah, in, in the way that I do, then yes. I mean, if, if a, an example of advertising is, is fits into that defin, definition of propaganda, then yes, then that's ethically wrong. That's an ethical problem. Um, but of course, what I'm trying, what I, what I'm saying is, is that you can conceive of consensual and non-consensual forms of persuasion. Mm. So if an advertisement for a company you know, remains within consensual territory, then I would argue that you, know, you can ethically say it's, it's okay, it's upstanding. If an advert falls into a territory of deceiving, incentivizing, coercing, and so on, then, you know, then, then it becomes an ethical issue and it's, it's, it's a problem. So again, as with any form of persuasion, whether it's coming from a government or it's coming from big business, there are ways of doing this which are honest and which don't involve uh, manipulating people. And so one of the examples I, I sort of gave when I was looking at the invasion of Iraq, working on papers, looking at the manipulation of intelligence, and we were thinking, well, what point was their deception by the British government? And of course, one of the thought processes we went through is that, well, you know, could the British government have, have, have sold the war in Iraq? And done it in a consensual mm. way, and the answer was well, yes. They, they could have said to the public, they could have said, well, well, we don't think Iraq has any WMD capability at the moment, but it might have it in ten years' time if we lift the sanctions now. But we think weighing that all up, that we should still go to war and invade the country. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been an honest way of trying to persuade people to support a war. Of course, the British government knew it couldn't do that. Because no, everyone would say, "Well, don't go to war." But you know, but the you know, honest persuasion it was open to the to the British government in in that case. But they didn't go down that path; they went down the road of deception. Um, so you know, without I means another way to things to say is, I mean, there's always ethics involved in this, how you're communicating. And, and and my sort of concern coming from this ethical angle is that anyone who's out there trying to persuade, um, you know, you need to think is. Is what I'm doing is, is is this honest? Am I engaging in deception? Am I hiding information which really the people knew about this? They, they'll come to a different conclusion. Am I incentivizing? Am I actually engaging in kind of coercion? Am I am I making people scared of something which I know is really not that scary? 
but they're, they're getting scared by something and, and they're actually effectively being coerced. And, and so all, all communicators should be thinking, is, is what I'm doing, you know, is, is it consensual or non-consensual? And if it's non-consensual, then it's really we're in a territory of propaganda and I shouldn't really be doing this. And I'd have to ask myself, well, why am I engaging in this? Um, perhaps because my arguments aren't that strong on their own. And I'm right. to engage yes. in this kind of pressuring. Um, but could it be argued, Pierce, that that there that there might be an ethical reason uh to manipulate a absolutely you, you can um i mean there, there are this is another element to sort of bringing ethics into the conversation you know, one part is when when is communication sort of well, when is persuasion ethical and when is it unethical and so you've got that distinction there then there's a question of when you are engaging in as it were unethical persuasion where you're it's non-consensual can it be justified? And yeah, absolutely. There are circumstances, and, and actually we, we tend to state this in, or I've stated this in publications I've put out, that you can conceive of circumstances where propaganda is necessary and justified. You know, you don't have to go to as an extreme example as, as, as one you gave, but you know, if your desire is to protect people, and if there's an emergency situation and so on, then you can certainly justify propaganda. In, in the same way that one might say that some of the scientists involved in advising the government in the early days of COVID-19 might have felt that, well, this is justified. We're trying to stop this people from dying from this and they, they need to be made a bit more scared. So it can be justified. What I would say, I mean, there is a literature, there is a relatively small literature, but there is a literature in political science on deception. And this is, of course, one of the areas I spent some time looking at with colleagues when we were recon or conceptualizing propaganda. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, this issue of, of justified deception, when is it okay to lie? And, and you can always think of circumstances where it's okay to lie, but there's always a downside to that. The downside, one of the downsides is you erode trust, ultimately, in, in government. Um, but the general gist from a, a couple of the books, which, uh, which I use quite extensively, was that, you know, really most of the time, you know, honesty is, is the appropriate path. And most of the deception going on, most of the propaganda isn't justified. It's just powerful actors using propaganda mm -hmm. to serve ultimately their own interests. And so whereas you can find those circumstances where you can just about justify, you know, propaganda, it's, it's relatively rare. And the big problem we have is that we do supposedly live in democracies or that's rapidly vanishing at the moment but we live in democracies and obviously um, whilst propaganda and deception might sometimes be necessary in a democracy one would hope or one would expect that most of the time that it's, you do have relatively non-propagandistic communication going on because otherwise how on earth do you have democracy how on earth do people rationally think you know what policies they support and, and so on if there's there's so much propaganda that people can't sort of work out the truth for themselves. So, you know, it's the, the exceptions, you know, when you can say it's necessary to engage mm. in propaganda are relatively rare, but not, you know, it doesn't exclude their importance and significance. Um, but, you know, but as I say, most, I mean, as far as I can judge from my sort of study of in, over the last number of years looking at propaganda in Western democracies is that, you know, our big problem is, is not with, you know, justified use of propaganda in, in emergency situations. The problem is just the routine 
yes. use of Freud, and, and its penetration into society, which means that we, we, we're really living in a world where it's very difficult for people to work out the truth of what's going on, where well, it's yes, it, easy for yeah, exactly. power to abuse. <laughs> um, it's, it's, because I was just about to ask you, then how does one figure out then what the truth is? Well, I mean, one of the points you made, I'm not sure where we were, we were on air, but talking about sort of, you know, people starting to talk to each other around the world and then people sort of looking to people like me who might have some kind of insight. Um, one of the things that, say, a member of the public can do, first of all, is, is to become more familiar with actually a quite extensive critical literature in the social sciences, talking about power and communication. Um, so, for example, Herman Chomsky's propaganda model of the media, which was a pulling together of, of, of a variety of political communication research, already from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, into a, into a unified model. But people learning about that material, and this is what I used to teach when I, when I was at um, university and still teach when, when I give lessons here and there now. Um, is that this gives you the intellectual understanding of, of how power is working and how communication is, is working. And of course, what it does, the first thing that does is it stops you from being uncritical of the information you're getting from the mainstream media. So that's step one. That think, well, what, what we're getting from the mainstream media and what my government might be telling me, you know, I have to take with a pinch of salt and so on. So I think that's an important first step. Okay, but you can get to that point then you can start to be uh, sort of defend yourself against propaganda. Then the next step is, as you kind of suggested, well, how do you then find out what the truth is? You know that you can't fully trust what your government is saying or what the mainstream media is saying. Well, then the next step is you can look to alternative information. Um, and there is plenty of alternative media, there are podcasts, what you do and, and what others do increasingly now. And people can think, well, okay, let's look at a range of opinions on this issue. Okay. You know, what can Asian do it in relation to a war, for example, whether it's Iraq or Syria, and say, well, what's my government saying? What's the Syrian government saying? What's the Russian government saying? And, and then think, well, okay, <laughs> well, what do I make of all of this, rather than believing any one position? So that's a stance that anybody can take, and, and you can take this in relation to you know, major issues. So then uh, sifting through information, and obviously I, I think that the wider range of material that people look at, the better in a sense. Um, and then, finally, I'd say people need to use their own intelligence. I, I do have, maybe it's an assumption, maybe it's a naive belief, but I, I do think that, that people, most people have sufficient intelligence to make informed, well, to make judgments on what is trustworthy, what is not trustworthy, what makes sense, what you can be sure of, what you can be unsure of. Um, and if you do get people to a point where they, they understand how power is working, they understand about propaganda, for example, in my area, they understand about media bias and so on, then they're in a territory where they, they can really start critically about the information in front of them and they have a much better chance mm. of getting closer to the truth. So, you know, a simple example, so somebody looking at the Syrian war, who's just been listening to the British government and Bellingcat and Sky News for 10 years, will we'll have a very, very specific interpretation of what's going on. But if they spend time looking at, say, Russian media or looking at critical voices challenging that, 
then they will start to see, well, there's another side to this. And then you're in a better position to um, come to, you know, a more confident, informed position. But that that point about people having faith in their own or confidence in their own intelligence is an important thing. So I, I do go with this idea that others have pointed out. Um, I think Vanessa Beely says this quite often, the independent journalist, that you know, people have in a way of being brainwashed or gaslighted into mm. not feeling very confident in themselves. Yeah. And and I have to admit, in my twenty years in academia, I, I saw a, a shift in students from being quite independent minded through to just being very um relatively speaking, willing to follow the lead. Yeah, um dependent. And, so and dependent. And, and that's one of the things I, I noticed was that you know, students were not so much saying, I'm here at university to, to think critically and challenge. You had students, you know, by the, after 2010, would tended to be saying, well, I, I just want to get a, how do I get a first? Um, I don't want to necessarily expand my mind or, or, mm. or, or read around. I just want to, well, what do I need to do? What tricks do I need to get a first and, 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 and to jump through the hoops? And, you know, I, I think that we do live in a society where the independent critical thinking has been sort of washed out of a lot of people. And people can get that back, but they need to regain it. The first thing with COVID-19 was, and, and I, I, I did write a piece for Off Guardian about this early on, and I, I said, well, this is obviously a major event. I mean, it's a major event because we're being told it's a major event. Yeah, okay. But this is sort of, this is a major event. And of course, when a major event occurs, you know, one needs to be aware that political actors, economic actors, all powerful actors will often try to exploit events in order to do things. Um, and I think the comparison I made with 9-11 uh, at the time, I said, well, 9-11, an event, you have people who are terrified of the alleged threat of Islamic, Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. And as, as, as one speechwriter for the Bush administration said, that you know, this is a plastic, malleable moment for the American public. We can do things. And, and I suppose you know, in recent years, I've been looking at the 9-11 global war on terror and the Chilcot report occurred, had, had come out. And it became very clear from internal documents that they were planning regime change wars, which weren't really connected to 9-11. So, you know, they had a big event. People thought that, well, we're going to try to chat battle Al-Qaeda and Bin Laden, but then you had this kind of uh, parallel agenda of regime change wars, which was being enacted. So, you know, power, we can see very clearly there that powerful actors were exploiting 9-11 and this controversy about that, which we can come back to, obviously, um, in order to get regime change wars going. COVID-19, wow, you have this 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 virus and it's being we're being told that it's extremely serious and they're locking down now and so you have a major event here and so you have people who are scared a lot of people who believe that they might die from this virus and you're thinking well you know in political terms this is a, an event which is extremely vulnerable to manipulation and exploitation so i mean in a sense that red flag comes just from sort of previous knowledge and, and you know, actually any good political scientist should know that Political actors love to make a mm. take advantage of crises to do things. Um, so that was the first, and that's a warning I gave in March or April, along with others, saying that well, let's be very careful here. Um, we have a virus; it's not entirely clear. 
um, as far as I could tell at the time, what, what, how serious it was. And yet very draconian responses were occurring, right? I mean, lockdown. You know, we don't tend to do that. Most uh, public health planning, as far as I, from what I understand, is, you know, you quarantine the sick and you, everyone else carries on. You don't just quarantine everybody. So you had these extreme, and, and so that was, you know, disconcerting. Well, okay, this is, this is ripe for exploitation. The second red flag for me was, um, I mean, really it was seeing how many scientists were coming out very early on saying, hey, wait a minute. And so you had Bakhti in Germany, um, you had Bhattacharya, you had uh, Ioannidis, um, later on Martin Kuldoff, um, but you had pretty eminent scientists mm. saying, you shouldn't be locking down, take an alternative approach. You had uh, Tegnell in, in, in Sweden, of course, bucking the trend and saying we shouldn't be locking down. But you had enough very credible scientists saying, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. And then they were getting smeared and suppressed very, very quickly. And I think, um, you know, it was, it was clear within months that YouTube and Facebook were openly sort of saying that they were as it were, controlling the narrative through censoring effectively and keeping sort of the, the, the output roughly in line with what the World Health Organization was saying. So, you know, look, it's simple. You, why, why you've, got a, you've got a major crisis, allegedly, and then you have big-name scientists, very credible scientists. Why are they being suppressed? Mm. You know, there's going to be a reason. So that's an indicator that you have propaganda. And then I think at the same time, this was maybe about April, you, you had the spy, the, the behavioral psychologist who advised the British government. That, those documents became, more people became aware of them. They weren't secret. They were I mean, they're up on a website. But it was clear that they were talking about raising threat, the fear levels in the population using the media. Similar papers came out in Germany called the, came known as the Panic Papers, and I think that came out slightly later in, in the COVID event um, history. Um, but you, you had the same sort of evidence appearing of, of actual attempts to, to, to manage and to actually increase the sense of panic and fear. So, and, um, again, I mean, the point you made earlier, so why do you have to do this? With, yes. If something is so threatening and dangerous, it should be why self-evident. Are you having to ramp up the fear levels, and why are you having to sit on the scientists who are saying, wait a minute, this, this mm. response makes no sense. And I think at that point, the alarm bells are all ringing. <laughs> Early on, I mean, I, I was very involved in the OPCW issue, and I have been throughout this time, and I was quite focused on that. We'd done a talk in the House of Commons, and there were other things happening in relation to that. And so I wasn't quite picking up on what was happening. I was aware of those images and, and didn't spend too much time thinking about them. Um, looking back on them, and I know that there is some controversy out there about where these images came from, what they were, but, but it, it does, does seem that they were being used, exploited. Whether they were fabricated or not is not really the point. The, these, are, these are sort of images and footage that were being used by somebody um, in a way which obviously created a sense of potentially of, of, of absolute panic. It's like a Hollywood movie, isn't it? It's like outbreak or contagion where, where you have people just collapsing in the streets and so on. Um, and so th that was a sign that something was going on, but I hadn't quite picked up on that, as I say, maybe because I was distracted by other stuff. But looking back on it, it that's a warning sign. I think Mark Crispin Miller said that was a, an early warning sign that you have an event which is propagandized.
So I think all of those things were, were you know, in, in the, let's break into phases. The first phase of COVID nineteen, say the first year where we go through the first sort of cycle of, of the, the virus, and then um, supposedly into right sort of uh, lifting restrictions, and then before we then plunge back into lock, locking down again in, in the winter of 2020. In, in that first stage, I, I think it was, you know, it became clear relatively early on that they were propagandizing in the very least because they were, in a sense, overreacting to the virus, that they were thinking, we've got to do something and you had get bring in the behavioral psychologists and they say, well, we'll try this and this and mm. um, you, you'll get the population to comply with lockdown and we'll save the save save the population and so on and so there, there was certainly proper going propaganda going on at that level that was very clear I think, in, in that phase um uh, the, at the very least um it was propaganda aimed at perhaps in a sense as you suggested before perhaps a well-intentioned ethical propaganda aimed at just trying to save lives in an emergency um, but they were certainly doing that, and I don't think that's un- that's not controversial anymore. I mean, it's been said by enough people. As I mean, Laura Dodsworth's book, *State of Fear*, has interviews with some of Spy B. As I say, you got the Panic Papers, and you know, I you know, we we could do more research on that front, but I mm. I, I think it's it, it's reasonable um, to. But assert with some confidence that there was that level of propaganda going on in the first. Um, seven or eight months of the event. Well, I'm, I'm bending over backwards to, 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 to give a fair hearing in a sense to, to the people who have been implementing this policy. And you, you can, I, I think they have to concede that they're engaging in propaganda. And I think you know, the Spy B people wouldn't deny that. And I'm sure this, this is probably a, a process which is mirrored across other countries around the world in relation to this. Um, so they're engaging in propaganda, but you could say, well, okay, they're overreacting. That they're believing their own assessments of the likely death toll, for example. And so you have the you know Imperial College and Neil Ferguson and these estimates. You have Drosten <laughs> in, in Germany and so on. Maybe that they're really believing that 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 what this thing is is something. Um, I don't want to trivialize it, but you know the, the kind of feeling of, of what you see in a Hollywood movie, you know, Contagion and. And uh, it, it is it's contagion and outbreak are the two kind of recent Hollywood. Sort of. So, um, so maybe they're overreacting. That they are misinterpreting the evidence or overinterpreting the material in front of them, and that's kicking them into this kind of propaganda drive, and that explains it. Um, I mean, and I'm bending over backwards on that. I, I, I think. The, when we get to sort of really by autumn 2020 and we're going back into lockdown effectively and there's more and more evidence and the scientists who are questioning it are becoming more vocal and then you had the great Barrington declaration mm. coming out and so on with uh, Sinetra Gupta and Martin Kulldorff and Bhattacharya and, and many many others signing on to that as well um, you then have this thing carrying on and and that's the point at which I think for me it started to erode immediately any idea. This is not a, a cock up. This is not an overreaction where they've used propaganda because they just misunderstood, the, you know, and so on. This is actually carrying on now. And and I remember the last communication for me with a member of my family who's a medical doctor was. Um, uh, 
if if you don't stand up and start calling this out now, this is not going to mm-hmm. stop. And as they locked down in the UK in the autumn, I think now, and we can perhaps get to this more fully, but now we're in a territory where you know the warnings that this event might be used for other reasons. It, it is now, I think, overwhelmingly clear that COVID nineteen, at the very very least, is being used for, for major. For, for other things, for major economic and political objectives, which we can obviously talk about. And and I think that, that that's clear now. So obviously this event is, is, is something which the important thing about COVID-19 is not this virus issue, which can be dealt with, um, whatever it is, can be dealt with in the ways that we've dealt with viruses in the past. There's no need to change anything. That's obvious now. So countries like Sweden demonstrate that and so on. Um, so this is obviously there is pro- there's a different level of propaganda here. This is about using it as a as a propagandized event to do other things, um, and now that's starting to help us explain um, why we saw the propaganda in the early phase and. And, and many other people are way ahead of me on this in terms of research and understanding, I think. But looking at the multiple conflicts of interest, um, you know, between, the, the, say, in America, the federal agencies and, and the drug industry, um, and then the World Health Organization, and then the WEF, which we'll obviously come on to talk about. But, but you, you have what is, is clearly a powerful actors pushing agendas, pushing COVID-19, and so on, and, and, and this yeah. is about achieving something else. So it's a simple thing. What, what um, the British journalist Neil Clark said is: this is not about a virus. This is not primarily um, everything that we're seeing is not to do with public health and then dealing with a virus. And I think that's that's where we are now. Well, that still allows some of those scientists, and they're still at it. And I noticed they're still mm. the same scientists are still pushing the line on in Britain for lockdown again, essentially. Um, and, yeah, Ferguson. And vaccination, obviously, and mandated vaccination. They might still believe what they're doing. They s- still might be in this kind of propaganda bubble where they believe their own propaganda, and, and they're just they're just rolling with it. That they haven't escaped. They haven't realised that's possible. Yeah. Um, but there's obviously other actors who have been pushing this from the beginning, and and this is another area which I don't tend to talk about. That much, <coughs> Bill Gates. I haven't looked at it myself. Excuse me. <laughs> When people start to look at the, the lead up to uh, the COVID nineteen event, and uh, Fabio Vigi, uh, the uh, Cardiff professor, has been talking recently about um, the financial aspects, the the, the cr- crisis in the markets in two thousand nineteen, and of course, Catherine Austin Fitz and Professor Werner and Ernst Wolf have all been saying the same thing actually from the beginning. Um, talking about the kind of the, the, the financial crisis and the way in which we sort of seem to be going into this kind of restructuring of the finance markets and a restructuring of the economy under the cover of COVID-19. And that inevitably raises these questions about, okay, this was occurring well before COVID-19. And, you know, we have all of the information we have now about Event 201. You mentioned Bill Gates himself. Um, and then the question marks, which actually, of course, were refused originally, weren't they? You, you couldn't talk about the, where the virus came from mm. without being accused of being a conspiracy theorist. And that was actually one of the Times attacks on me was based around that, was that I'd, I'd mentioned possibilities of where the virus came from. Um, that's allowed now. 
apparently we can talk about that, about being accused of being conspiracy theorists in the mainstream media. But all of those questions, you know, are, are there to be explored by people. In, in a way, I, I'm not actually self-censoring. I, I do tend to have a line that I, I tend to talk, mm. you know, I, I only talk about things which I'm con- I've looked at closely enough myself. And, and feel that I've either done research or there's enough research out there that I'm happy with to, to speak confidently. And so um, it's not that I'm, I'm nervous, but but yeah, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is you do have things such as Event 201 and all of these things um, need detailed interrogation. Some people, you know, people like I think Whitney Webb's been very good, Corey Morningstar's been very good, um, and there's many, many more who have been pushing the work on, on that area. Um, and also some mainstream, I, I, I don't know, maybe not mainstream, but more and more sort of people within the mainstream seem to be asking some of these questions. Um, but for, look, for sure, I mean, you, you'd have to be naive not to start to say, where is this coming from? If, if, if as for example, as the economist experts are suggesting there was a big crisis in the finance markets, which we can see and which was occurring, and that lockdown was was part of the tools of trying to sort of close down Main Street whilst they sort out Wall Street, as as, as way somebody put it. Um, you know, sort of the timing of these events need to be explored. I mean, I'm looking at a book at the moment by Case van der Peil, the, the um, Dutch political uh, economist, and and you know he, he's emphasising, or at least in the section I'm reading at the moment, he, he's emphasising the need to regain control over populations which ran hand in hand with the emergence of COVID-19. So he points towards what was happening in France with the yellow vests, points towards uh, what's happening in Chile and also India as well um, and so on with, with these kind of you know pushback resistance to authorities and establishment. And so you kind of get a sense of losing control and, and then COVID-19 comes along and wow, what a convenient opportunity to clamp down and to put everyone on a hold in, in a sense for a long period of time. And so I, I think, I mean, we can be a bit more specific in, in a bit about what I think the, the key things which we can sell are going on at the moment. But yeah. One's naive not to think, okay, let, not to be asking the questions of what is really going on here. Look at, look at the actors involved, look at the timing of events. Um, you know, how bad is this as an event? Is it just an, a, a, an event? It seems pretty bad. Or is it an event which is instigated? Mm. Um, you know, I mean, these things are all there. And you know, we go back to 9-11, of course, with all of this. And, you know, it, it's clear that his, it, the official story is not true, <laughs> is not correct. And it's and as I say in public, the question now is which state actors were involved in this. Mm. <laughs> that's the question for us to objectively analyze. But that's where we are. The official story is not true. Um, and so on. So this... we need to be applying that kind of critical thinking, obviously, to COVID-19. Is it powerful to fight propaganda with propaganda? Hmm. I don't think that you should employ deception, incentivization, or coercion in a fighting in a fight for the truth. I, I think. Look, I could be naive in, in, in this, but I, I think that you know the truth is something which is is critical. In many ways, to you know, academia, to democracy, and 
our commitment to it is necessary if we're going to have a society which is, you know, re run along reasonably ethical lines and as a kind of society which is a good society to have. So we need to hold on to that. And that means that when we're in a battle to get the truth out up against powerful actors, which I think we are in the case of COVID-19, we are in a case in relation to um, uh, 9-11, uh, in relation to the OPCW and, and my own involvement in that, I'm up against powerful actors and boy, do I know it. <laughs> you know, I'm reminded of it on, 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 on occasions. But in those battles against powerful actors, we need to try to stick stay with our principles and that's if we're trying to get the truth out we need to do that in truthful ways and not engage in propaganda so if we're trying to fight the covid propaganda you know i it's 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 wrong of us it's wrong to try to engage in um deception in order to win your side of the argument but also i think in the long run ultimately it will fail because this is the whole point is that this is about battling lies and deceptions in society um, and in the long run, the truth comes out. Truth is the daughter of time, saying, and so on. Um, and, and it's very important. And, and you know, and, and I do believe there's an audience out there, right? And it's just the fact that, as you said before, that you and I are speaking, you know, at different ends of the world on this one issue. Mm -hmm. I do believe that there's people out there, and there's a very big audience there, people who, who, who want to know the truth, and they will look to people who they have confidence in for telling the truth. So you don't want to start engaging in your own little propaganda activity. Now that's not to say that one should be trying to persuade and trying to get the truth out, but you need to avoid these kind of, the way I define propaganda, right. of, of playing around with deception and, and, and we, you know, we, we need to have a, keep it, maintain a clean bill of health in this for it, for us to be able to fight back and for us also to stay true to our principles. The, one has to react quickly um, and one has to try to, 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 to push back. But, but I, I'm saying that it won't be a fair, if you engage in propaganda, then people will just, the people that you're trying to influence will just start to recognize that at some point. Mm, okay. What we have at the moment, what I was trying to say, what we have at the moment is we do have a lot of people who are recognizing that there is propaganda and that they are being manipulated. Um, and these people, um, you know, I, we're told we live in a post-truth world, but we're being told we live in a post-truth world by people such as Bellingcat, who are, you know, mm -hmm. UK government-linked propaganda operation, because they, they, they don't care about the truth kind of thing. So that's the kind of thing they would say. And of course, in, in academia, you've had this whole intellectual movement around postmodernism. the facts don't matter. We don't quite say that, but, you know, that's how it's been interpreted by a lot of people. But lots of people do care about mm. the truth, and, and it is important to many people. And if we're trying to, if we're in a battle against powerful forces who have propagandized people, terrified people into taking a vaccine, then if, if we try to counter that by creating another deception to try to bring them over to us, then you know, we're just going to get found out doing that at some point. The, the, the truth has a, has a power and an anchoring for people, which the people who are up against, that's their greatest fear, is that people find out the truth. Mm. Because the truth doesn't have its own quality, and it is what it is. It's the truth. You, you can't, if you have all the facts, you, you, can't, you, know, you can't change that truth. And that anchor is necessary to keep that there, so that when we're trying to persuade people, people know that they have faith that we're, we're telling the truth, 
and they come and they come to support us. And then in this struggle against this increasingly evil-looking, I very rarely use that term, but very evil-looking power base or network of interests which are pushing all of this, um, we win people over to our to the truth and they stay with us and then that acts as a block against these people. I, I can't imagine how we could start engaging in, for example, deception or incentivization and win people over because well, you're doing what they are doing and so I'm quite aside from the fact that you're caught into, into the world of telling lies. We, we, we are in a situation where we do need to speak our minds and we, you're, you're already acting, doing what you're doing. I'm acting, doing what I'm doing. And, and I know as an academic, I mean, what I might have said a few years ago is, like, well, I'll wait for a bit more, a few more years, and then look closely at it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not, this is an emergency for our society. So we need to act quicker than we would normally act, possibly. Um, but, you know, but people, you know, as I said to other people, I talk, you know, people go and join a party that's pushing back against us, go and join an organization. Go and resist in some way. Don't wear a mask when you, uh, in, in some setting where you're being required to wear a mask and see, see if you can challenge in that way, that kind of civil disobedience technique you see with the black civil rights movement in, in, the, in the 60s in America. Um, so we need, we need to deal with this by, by recognizing the seriousness of the situation and just trying to act and just do what we can. Um, and that's the way to respond to this and see, see where we get with, with the resistance. I, 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 I mean, it's, it's very difficult. So you're right, we are. It feels like we're in the middle of a, a battle, a, mm. a very unpleasant, scary battle, which is taking us to dark places and so on. But the, the other thing in all of this, and, and this is something I, I think, um, is something that Nick Hudson from Pandate said, which kind of sort of just stuck with me was that you know this importance of just trying to stay calm and rational and 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 this is actually a conversation i, I have within my own family and, and you know because we're, we're all battling with this and and so on and 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 it's scary and and sometimes you feel sense of panic at what's happening right you know sort of you feel well, i might not be able to do my job because i won't get the vaccination that those those threats are real um and and very tangible and so on but but trying within that just to try to remain calm and think rationally and think well okay how are we going to win this fight we're not going to win this fight by losing our heads or you know panicking we we if we're going to win and we need to just try and be calm and rational and you know and try to stick with that I think not that we shouldn't get angry or mm. cross or speak out but you know just act rationally try to yeah. Stay, yeah. the idea understanding COVID nineteen as an event which is being exploited for other purposes and and I think my, my own learning curve in, in recent months I mean we spoke a little bit about it this this idea that we have it's a financial event that this argument being put forward by whether it's Ernst Wolf or or Werner or uh, Vigi, Vigi um, about the finance markets about restructuring the economy these all seem very very plausible so this clearly seems to be part of understanding this is part of the thing which is being done under the cover of COVID-19, sorting out the finance markets um, and so on. And there seems to be a lot of evidence of that. So, okay, that's, that's one right. Okay, so that's, we need to get on board of understanding what's going on there. Dovetailing with this or overlapping, of course, as some people have been pointing out from the start, you have the World Economic Forum and you have, here we go, Build Back Better, Fourth Industrial Revolution, 
Um, there are more, aren't there? Sound bites. But this is this is you can see quite clearly now. Some people have seen this from the start. Okay, of course they're accused of being conspiracy theorists. But you clearly have a kind of ideological political project uh, manifesting itself in the World Economic Forum and what they're saying about the fourth industrial revolution. And and as, as I've said before, people like Whitney Webb and Corey Morningstar are very good in this aspect of of of, of the political agendas going on. Um, but they're clearly having a particular vision for the future, and, and this also seems to be overlapping with the finance issue in the form of the, well, first of all, the vaccine mandates, this mandates this incredible drive to get everybody vaccinated, or every, rather, I should say, everybody injected with this material, okay, um, as a way of getting us to digital ID, which according to some of the economists who I've mentioned before, say this, this looks like stepping stones towards a central bank digital currency. So, okay, and, and, and you know, they're not doing any of this in secret, by the way. This is all sort of, you know, <laughs> hiding in plain sight. You know, you, you've got um, central banks have been talking about the digital currency. But what are, this all starts to look like, and this is the warning coming from a lot of people now, is that you have a political vision here with the WEF, or manifesting itself with the WEF. That, by the way, seems to be connected in with many of the actors globally that we see pushing the COVID agenda. Then we have the central banks and the finance crisis, and yet we have digital ID, and then, as many people have pointed out, this looks like you know this can end up as a Chinese-style social credit system, where we have there is complete control over financial transactions. There is complete control, effectively, over us as individuals. The ability of governments to punish us, for example, for dissenting, for bad behaviour on the web, all becomes completely realisable. I, with, with the digital ID, and so you, you can start. These are these are the dynamics which I think are becoming increasingly well documented. WEF political agenda, fourth industrial revolution, the financial crisis, merging into this kind of high tech future, um, which involves massive degrees of control. Yeah, this is there's a constellation of interests between. Mm. I mean, the WEF is, is in a way is just the kind of the, the surface level of, of this. Now, you've got big tech, clearly, big pharma. You then have, you know, for want of a better word, the military-industrial complexes mm. across, you know, Western powers and other state, states in the world. Um, and this is where it comes in the, the, the thing I'd say, in addition to the finance, the WEF, political ideological element, uh, what I'm saying with this book from Case van der Paar, which is coming out soon, is, is, is also is about control of resistance from populations that, you know, we had the major financial crash in 2008, and, and then this is, you know, coming back in 2019, growing resistance, yellow vests in France, two years of protests. You know, this is also about states getting control over populations. And I think, you know, you almost have a convergence of all of this into um, what we're seeing. And, and it's not, you're not having to, as you say, it's not a conspiracy. None of this is being hidden. It's, it's, it's there for anybody who's willing to look. Um, and that is very much where we seem to be now. We, we have these constellation of interests. They're pushing these agendas and it's taking us straight down the road where we're going to lose democracy completely. Um, and, and potentially. 
Um, so it's extremely worrying. And this is where even going to the darker places of questions surrounding the injection, the question surrounding its harmful effects. And and, and I have to admit, I, you know, following a little bit of Professor Robert Malone, the guy who invented part of the mRNA technology, it's terrifying listening to what he has to say about what this injection might be doing in terms of making variants more dangerous, about just the, the basic health risks of, of this thing for people who aren't in the high risk bracket, which is the bulk of us. Mm. Um, you know, and so, so you have all these sort of, you know, darker agendas which some people are talking about and which are possibilities um, but it's looking very even in terms of what we've been talking about it's looking pretty bad we seem to be taken into I mean some people use the term neo-feudal capitalism others people are saying that this is essentially tyranny or totalitarianism or authoritarianism technocracy um, technocracy thank you um, you know, take your pick. You know these things. This is this is what is clearly going on now, and and this is what you know we're trying to do is trying to get people to wake up, wake up to this. And we're just seeing it in real time. We're seeing people losing their jobs in America and it's because all, they won't take it. And it's all driven by propaganda, ironically. Yeah, driven by propaganda. We see, I mean, look at Australia. I mean, mm. it's breathtaking what we're seeing in Australia. It's absolutely incredible. Um, and you know, I mean. I don't tend to like labels and when people say fascists and so on, it's, I, I don't tend to use them. But I mean, Mark Chris Miller made this point that so we're at this point where fascism is staring people in the face. And, and this, you know, we're saying this, this is remarkable. How, how can we be at this point where our participation in society is, is going to be determined if some people have their way, Bill Gates again? By yeah. accepting the injection, this is this is incredible, and in, and this kind of injection as well, which is sort of untested, not fully tested, and we've clearly we're having negative impact on a considerable mm. number of people, you know. So this is extraordinary. This is this is the end of freedom, and so on. So, um, you know, I, I I think this is this is looking pretty <clears throat> pretty badly, and and I'm, in a sense, I'm talking from a personal point of view because you know i'm affected directly by this and my family isn't so you know we're in a very dangerous situation now and we're at a we're in a pivotal stage i think in the coming months um their drive to get vaccine passports digital id which then gets them to lockdown get total control over the economy through uh, di- uh central bank digital currency the only thing will stop this is organization and resistance and we don't know where this is going to go we really don't know where this is going to go. I mean, I'm hopeful, um, but at the same time, you know, it, this is this is this is not looking good. I, I I do think that I do have this sense that they've bitten off more than they can chew with this. I, I do think, and, and the comparison, and this this comparison could be completely flawed, but this, you know, it keeps on coming back into my mind, but. You know, when the neocons invaded Iraq, okay, there's this kind of idea that the Iraqis would be really, really happy and and it, you know be celebrating and it will all be over. But they had this kind of ideological overreach by the neocons. They believed their own propaganda, their own ideology. And I'm wondering if, if, if this kind of constellation of forces, which is thinking that it can sell populations with this apparent dream of this kind of digital city it is wired connected with a vaccine every six months very sort of very atomistic kind of mm. um society with no real freedom 
if they really think that that's something which most people want. Because I can believe, and because it's Bill Gates, I can be impolite. I believe that geeks like Bill Gates <laughs> probably probably can make, fool themselves into thinking that people, that's all that people want. They want an espresso machine there and their computer and laptop and, and just be wired up to the computer all the time. Geeks might like that, but most people don't want that. And most people, most people want family, community, and some level of autonomy, and so on. So I, I, I think I, I'm hopeful that, that they, they, they are overreaching on this, and that there will be enough resistance. Um, but there, there is no two ways about this. Even if we succeed in derailing, or at least sort of derailing some of this project, everything else from here on in is going to be, I, I think, a long, long process of rebuilding restoring uh, build, building back better <laughs> yeah, yeah building back better our way um and so on and, but but starting with starting with where i came from academia um i mean academia has been terribly complicit with covid19 and and i know because i work with some academics who are trying mm. to speak about it and, and and they're terrified to speak out about it <laughs> academics terrified to speak out about uh, you know a, a major issue uh, is this the largest standard. would you say that this is the largest what's the right term uh, propaganda project in human history I, I think it's reasonable to make that argument because because of its global scale yeah and because of because of the entities that we can see are involved whether directly in the propaganda or just in the kind of ideology, but there's always an interplay between mm. propaganda and ideology, which we don't have time to go into. But, but just you know, the World Health Organization, Bill Gates, the number of governments involved, and in a way, the scale of the issue itself, you know, the, the, the ultimate nightmare. Um, well, it's, it's not the ultimate nightmare. The, the next one is asteroids coming to hit the Earth and then alien invasion, which. You know, <laughs> um, and so on, but it's it, it's global, and and I think the resources that we're starting to see that have been put into this, and 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 I've actually lost track of you know I, I do try to keep a note because I'm writing various pieces and, and doing work for various people on this, but the, the bits of evidence coming in of oh look Bill Gates Foundation giving money to the BBC for example, the, the amount of this that has been going on is extraordinary. The, the level of corruption, if you want, is is the most accurate way of describing it. Conflicts of interest and so on. You know, you say, well, this is a major, this is a global propaganda political drive, which is certainly in propaganda terms, you can argue it's the biggest we've ever seen, um, using multiple levels of, 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 of influence through, through digital media, through to mainstream media, through to actual sort of, you know, coercive propaganda, you know, sanctioning people for not doing this and so on. Um, yeah, it, it, it's huge. And we're at we're at that. I, I, I suspect you know, although we'd want perhaps live in a better time, like um, you know, we're at that point where we are a, a major pivotal point in human history, and there is clearly forces trying to push us down a road which looks pretty uh, looks extremely dark. Mm -hmm. um, but we're we're in it. We're in the middle of it. I mean. Yeah, you know, I don't know. When I was studying politics at Essex University in the nineties, you know, all that people had to talk about was, oh, we've won the Cold War and then European Union and integration and so on. And there was an element of me thinking like, this is all a bit dull, isn't it? European <laughs> Union integration is, is if I want to be an academic, is that what I've got to study for the next day? 
times are uh, kind of exciting mm. in, in a sense, epic if you want to call it that, not that it feels like that, it just feels stressful and, and scary. But I think we are in, 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 a, in a remarkable moment and you know, if we all got to yeah. give hope to each other, you know, you and I are talking and you talk to many other people, I talk to many other people and there's lots of us who are mm. finding new relationships and, and new connections. Um, and I, I know in my own area, I've, I've never seen so many people talking about propaganda. Even mainstream journalists who have been mm. becoming more critical use the term propaganda in a way they wouldn't have done before. Um, so I, you know, th there's a lot of people waking up to this, um, and and yeah, and we'll see where it goes. We'll see whether we come out on the sunny side of the field, or whether more likely there's some kind of you know some derailing of the project and a longer term battle emerging i guess that's the most likely are you willing to never leave germany again um assuming assuming that you reject you know the vaccine passport for example and and it's a requirement to leave the country no, i'm not 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 willing in, in the sense of you know i, I would not I do not want to be in that kind of world where one is contained in that way. Um, I mean, uh, you know, potentially it can get worse than that, right? It can be, you know, restricting people's movement within countries. But no, I, I'm not willing to concede that kind of ground. No, not at all. It's the same as I'm not willing to concede this idea that that your participation, anybody's participation in society, is dependent upon them accepting injections. Um, those are all um, wrong. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be persuaded by some environmentalists that maybe travel abroad should be sort of you know, you know made more sort of environmentally friendly or less damaged or whatever or do less. Uh. Of it. But no, not not this idea that you cannot leave that people are, are contained. No, no, not at all. That's not something which any of us should be willing to give up. Well, let's not go down the rabbit hole of uh, climate change propaganda. That, no, that's that's I, for I'm another day. I'm fully aware. This is, this is a problem. You know, with COVID-19, <laughs> then you see all these other problems start to arise. And I've noticed this with, with 9-11, is that the people who, who hadn't even looked at 9-11, they, they understand what's going on with COVID-19. And then you point out a few basics on 9-11, and they go like, oh, blimey. <laughs> that one as well. But as you say, the, the, the whole issue of, yes. of, of the climate agenda is, is all something which... Again, people should be looking at very carefully yes. and critically. Um, right. In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? I see, my, my first response, was, I, I see a lot of struggle. And I see a lot of upheaval um, in, in our societies. That's, that's what I see. The, the thing's not going to collapse. I don't think they're going to win, but I think there's going to be a struggle. Um, I don't think it has to be a violent one. I don't think that's that's not what I'm saying, but I think there's going to be a lot of people having to put their lives on hold and struggle, civil disobedience, resistance, and so on. To struggle, I think. Um, that's, that's what I see. But with something positive can ultimately come out of this. Um, Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. I will okay. send you the link and all that stuff. Okay. Right here. Take care. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas.
If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.